You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 279, Race to the Dan. Uh, last time we took a detour to cover Arnold's invasion of Virginia, but before that we covered the showdown between General Daniel Morgan's army and the British army under Colonel Bannister Tarleton at Calpens. Even before General Cornwallis received word of the British defeat at Calpens, he was preparing to renew his offensive into North Carolina. With the arrival of General Alexander Leslie's reinforcements, his army was upwards of 3,300 men, with about two-thirds of them regulars. On January 18, 1781, Leslie's men made their final march from Camden to link up with Cornwallis at Winsboro, South Carolina. That same day, Colonel Tarleton had returned to camp with less than 200 men, from a force of over 1,200 that he had led out of camp a few weeks earlier. Cornwallis's army was now closer to 2,500 men. Undeterred, Cornwallis was ready to move. The following day, his army began its march northward. At first, Cornwallis hoped to confront Morgan and finally defeat that division of the Continental Army. Cornwallis not only wanted to defeat Morgan, he also wanted to reclaim the 600 prisoners that Morgan had taken at Calpens. But Morgan was not looking for a fight. He had moved his men out of South Carolina and back into North Carolina, taking his prisoners with him. His goal was to get the prisoners to a safe location, then reconnect with General Greene's army somewhere in central North Carolina. The British army under Cornwallis found the march slow going. His army moved only about 12 miles per day, taking nearly a week to make the march to Ramser's Mill, the site of a battle that took place several months earlier. When Cornwallis arrived there on January 25th, he learned that Morgan's army had passed through the area two days earlier. Despite sticking to back roads, Morgan was averaging close to 20 miles per day. Cornwallis spent a few days at Ramser's Mill. He was frustrated by his army's slow movement and by his lack of good intelligence following the loss of Tarleton's legion. The general then made the decision to burn his own supply wagons. They were slowing down his army, and he needed to move quickly if he was going to catch Morgan and Green. And it wasn't just the officers' china and other luxuries that got tossed. Tents, clothing, even the rum supply went into the bonfire. The men only carried what they could take on their backs. Now, one of the things that each man was required to carry was an extra set of soles for his shoes. Cornwallis expected to do a lot of walking in this campaign and wanted every soldier ready for that. But with the British on the march, so were Greene and his Continentals. Greene also hoped to reunite with Morgan's army. 
He sent messages to Francis Marion and Light Horse Harry Lee in South Carolina, calling on them to bring their 300 horsemen to join the main army as well. Green and Morgan met up at Beatty's Ford on the Catawba River on January 30th. Green personally had raced ahead of his own army to catch up with Morgan. He ordered General Isaac Yugi to lead the army to Salisbury further to the north, and when Green met with Morgan at Beatty's Ford, the men were already aware that the enemy was in sight. On the other side of the river, Cornwallis's British regulars had encamped. Only heavy rains and a swollen river kept them from attacking in force. Green had hoped that the American victory at Cowpens and the British invasion of North Carolina would cause the local North Carolina militia to turn out in force. About 800 militia had turned out under General William Lee Davidson. But these were not enough, even if the men could be trusted to fight. Further, hundreds of Virginia militia who had been marching with Green's army insisted on going home as their enlistments were coming to an end. Morgan's force was completely exhausted and much smaller than the enemy facing them across the river. So without a large united army, Green held a council of war with Morgan, Colonel William Washington, and Militia General Davidson to decide what to do next. The British were going to be able to ford the river within a few days, and Green did not have the army assembled he needed to defeat them. The council agreed that retreat was the best option. Davidson would keep the local militia at the fords along the river, hoping to delay Cornwallis's advance as long as possible. Meanwhile, the rest of the army would retreat north. Cornwallis camped at Beatty's Ford to wait for the river to fall enough for his men to cross. Knowing that the Americans would contest the crossing, Cornwallis sent the bulk of his army four miles downriver to Cohen's Ford, which was not as good a crossing, but where Cornwallis hoped it would be less guarded. On the American side, Davidson suspected that Cornwallis might attempt a crossing at Cohen's Ford, so he deployed about 250 of his infantry militia there to contest any attempted crossing. The main fording path at Cohen's Ford was about two to four feet deep and crossed an island in the river partway across. But there was another passage there that was a little deeper and which was used primarily by wagons and allowed for a crossing further upstream. Davidson only posted a small picket guard at the wagon crossing and put the bulk of his forces at the main foot crossing. The British began their night march around 1 a.m. on February 1st, moving about half the army down to Cohen's Ford. They began crossing the ford around dawn. The men tied their ammunition belts around their necks in order to avoid them being soaked in the deep water. They used their muskets with bayonets to dig into the rocky soil as they crossed the river in order to keep the currents from sweeping them downstream. Even so, the current was pretty brutal especially when they used the deeper wagon crossing. Several soldiers and horses were carried away by the river, and many drowned. The militia quickly alerted to the crossing and began firing on the British. Cornwallis returned fire from cannons that he had set up on the British side of the river. As General Williamson attempted to rally his militia at the riverside, a British rifleman knocked him off his horse, killing him instantly. The militia continued to fire, but the British kept up their crossing. 
When enough had gotten across, they formed a bayonet charge to disperse the remaining militia. Soon, the militia were marching on the road to Salisbury, trying to catch up with the main army. By mid-morning, the British had established a force on the other side of the river and were forming to begin their chase. Cornwallis reported only four killed and 36 wounded in the crossing, but it appears that that number was woefully inaccurate. Locals reported dozens of bodies found over the next few days or weeks. Many of the bodies did not appear to be shot. The soldiers had simply drowned while trying to cross the river. Now, many of the militiamen who had escaped from Cohen's Ford after the British crossed it moved about 10 miles north to Torrance's Tavern. There, the whiskey flowed freely, and the soldiers attempted to calm their nerves from the battle that they had just fought. The tavern was a local rallying point, and the militia that gathered there expected to meet up with even more militia from the area before they would move again. As the men waited, early that afternoon, a rider galloped up to the tavern with news that Tarleton was on his way. Captain Nathaniel Martin attempted to set up a defense, but many of the men were too drunk or too exhausted to do much of anything. Soon, about 200 green-coated horsemen rode into view. Now, Tarleton saw that he was facing a much larger force, but the enemy was disorganized. The heavy rain made it unlikely that the militia rifles would fire. So Tarleton shouted, Remember the Calpins! and ordered a saber charge directly into the enemy lines. He later claimed that his legion killed about 50 men on the spot, wounded many others as they fled, and dispersed about 500 of the enemy. This was probably an exaggeration. Another British officer who arrived on the scene of the battle a few hours later reported seeing less than 10 enemy bodies. Nathaniel Green was at a farmhouse only six miles from the tavern that morning, from the captured prisoners, Tarleton learned of Green's presence and rode off in pursuit. But Green had already received warning of the British crossing and had moved on. Now, the next goal for both armies was trading forward on the Yadkin River. This was just above the rendezvous point at Salisbury. Green arrived there on February 3rd, finding Morgan and his Continentals already at the site. Isaac Yugi and the main Continental force still had not arrived. The torrential rains had made the river impassable. Green feared that he might have to face Cornwallis there with no avenue for escape. Unfortunately, Green had planned ahead and did have some boats available. Given the swift currents, even a passage across in a boat was slow going and dangerous. The army spent the day and night ferrying men and equipment across the river. The following morning, the vanguard of the British Army, under General Charles O'Hara, arrived on the scene. Only about 150 militia were still on the near side of the river. They fired a few shots at the approaching British, and then fled. Green had prepared for this contingency, leaving canoes a few miles downriver for the militia to cross. Once again, the British found a swollen river between them and their enemy. Green had removed all the boats. Cornwallis could only fire a few cannonballs across the river as he saw his target, once again, retreat further north. Now, the next rendezvous point for the army was Guilford Courthouse. Morgan continued to push his men through knee-deep mud roads. They managed to make the 50-mile march in two days. Once there, Morgan gave his men a well-deserved rest 
while sending some scouts to search the area for food and supplies. Over the next few days, the army grew. Isaac Yugi finally arrived at Guilford Courthouse with the hundreds of Continentals that had marched up on an eastern route. Late Horse Harry Lee also rode into camp with his legion. It was at this point that General Morgan had had enough. His sciatica had put his body through unbearable pain. He could barely sit in a saddle. Green begged him to stay, but saw that his condition made that impossible. On Morgan's recommendation, Green gave command of the division to Colonel Otho Holland Williams. Morgan managed to find a carriage and planned to ride home to Virginia to recuperate. Meanwhile, with trading fords still impassable, Cornwallis sent Tarleton upriver in search of another place to cross the Yadkin River. Tarleton found an unguarded ford known as Shallow Ford. As the Americans rested and assembled at Guilford Courthouse, the British had to march 40 miles upriver to cross, then 40 miles back, all through torrential rains and deepening mud-soaked paths. With the Continental Army finally combined, Green considered a fight at Guilford Courthouse. But the men were really still in no condition to fight. His army consisted of less than 1,500 men, with perhaps another 500 local militia, some of whom were not even armed. The large numbers of militia that he hoped for had never appeared. Green knew that Cornwallis had an army of close to 2,500 men, most of whom were regulars or Hessians, with the remainder being mostly battle-hardened provincials. Even so, the failure to stand and fight would mean the army would have to retreat into Virginia. They would effectively cede North Carolina to the British without a major battle. Green held another council of war with Yugi and Williams. Morgan, who still hadn't left, also attended, and the unanimous verdict was that the army had to retreat to Virginia. At this point, the British were about 25 miles to the west at Salem, North Carolina, what we know today as Winston-Salem. Cornwallis received intelligence that Green and his Continentals would move north to the Dan River and cross into Virginia. Now, the fords on the Dan were due north of both armies, meaning that Cornwallis could head off Green's march and get to the fords at least as fast as Green could. Once again, though, Green had other plans. Green split his army, sending Morgan's old division under Otho Williams north toward the Dan River fords. At the same time, Green moved the rest of his army northeast, away from the British, and toward a target that would reach an unfordable part of the Dan River. Williams's force of about 700 men kept the enemy occupied, without entering into a full battle. Williams had to keep a respectable distance between his army and the British in order to avoid a massacre. He used scouts to keep location on the enemy. When there was enough distance at night, Williams would camp, only to rise at about 3 a.m. and march away in order to avoid a dawn attack. His men would then stop for breakfast a few hours later, their only meal of the day, then they would continue their march. Riding with Williams was Colonel Lee, whose horsemen remained closest to the army. On February 11th, Lee stopped at a local farmhouse for breakfast. He soon got word that British dragoons were only a few miles away. Lee immediately mounted and rode out with a local man and his bugler to investigate. A few miles down the road, they encountered a few of Tarleton's dragoons on horseback. 
the Americans turned and fled as the dragoons charged them. Unfortunately, the young bugler was on a slow-moving pony. The dragoons quickly overtook him and hacked the boy to death with their sabers. By this time, part of Lee's squadron had caught up with the men and charged back at the dragoons. The squadron killed or chased off the dragoons, but hearing the sounds of battle from a distance, Tarleton brought up more of his legion to counterattack. As they charged down the road, they ran into an ambush that had quickly been set up by Lee's men. The British dragoons suffered 13 dead and several captured. The only American death was the unfortunate bugler. As Williams led Cornwallis closer to the fords on the Dan, it became clear that this was not where the main Continental Army was headed. Green, with his ever-methodical planning, had arranged for boats to carry his army across the Dan further downstream. Williams had been a distraction to allow Green time to get his men across in the boats. As Williams got closer to the river, he had orders to march quickly downstream to the boats and cross before the British could arrive. As Williams rode downriver toward the crossing point, he saw the campfires still on the near side of the river. If Green had not yet crossed, the British would be upon them before they could do so. Williams began to dread the notion that he would have to fight a hopeless delaying action against the entire British army in order to buy time for the crossing. As Williams entered the camp, he was relieved to find it empty. Green had already moved his army to the crossing and had left a few men to stoke campfires as a distraction. By the evening of February 14th, Green sent a courier to Williams, letting him know that the main army had crossed the river. Now Williams had to get to the crossing and get over before the British overtook them. Williams drove his already exhausted men in an all-night march to the crossing point and began to get his men and horses into the boats for the crossing. Green was there waiting for him, and the men crossed the Dan together. The last men to cross that night were Light Horse Harry Lee and Colonel Edward Carrington, the man who had arranged for the boats that carried the army to safety. When the lead British forces under General O'Hara got to the crossing point on the Dan, they found the Americans already on the other side, and once again no way for them to cross the river. Cornwallis had marched his British regulars with amazing speed through horrible conditions, but the Americans were still faster. By this time, Cornwallis had been marching hundreds of miles without tents or supplies, trying to engage an enemy who just kept slipping away. He was now more than 240 miles from his nearest supply base, back at Camden, South Carolina. Tarleton, who had been in the lead against the Americans, described their retreat as, quote, judiciously designed and vigorously executed. Cornwallis wrote to Lord Ralden that, quote, the fatigue of our troops and the hardships which they suffered were excessive. He found himself cut off from his own supply lines and communications deep in enemy territory. Although Cornwallis had crossed over North Carolina, he didn't really occupy it. Rather than chase the Americans into Virginia, Cornwallis gave up on his northward march. Instead, he moved his army at a relaxed pace about 50 miles south to Hillsborough. There, he raised the king's standard, claimed that the British had successfully reclaimed North Carolina, and called for the loyalists of the state to turn out and join his army. Less than a hundred men joined. 
Even worse, the area offered next to nothing in terms of food or supplies for his army. Cornwallis further created ill will by the need for his soldiers to go house to house and confiscate food for his men. The men ended up having to butcher oxen and even some of their own draft horses in order to feed the hungry and exhausted regulars. Meanwhile, Greene's army celebrated in Virginia. Lee, a Virginian himself, described the army as being received as brethren and enjoying the abundant supplies of food available in the area. Even so, Greene could not cede North Carolina to British control. Within days, he was planning to return to North Carolina and finally confront the British Army. But we'll have to leave that for next time when we cover the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey! Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, Michael Gaylord, and John Celentano, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Kurt Avard, and 10 Crucial Days, as well as Greg Pusak, who just upgraded to the Robert Morris Circle as well. Thanks also to everyone who has joined at the standard bearer level on Patreon last month, Chris Hyatt, Jim Ball, Corey Hanlon, Ryan Campen, Alan Burns, Tommy Thompson, and Chuck Darty. Also to longtime supporters Mary Lambden and Alex Robb, who just upgraded to Standard Bearer. I also appreciate one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo from Robert Parks, Paul Brown, Theo Speedy, John Van Zana, Zachary Blocker, Matthew Thews, and 80 Objects LLC. Many of you stepped up last month, either as first-time supporters or upgrading your support, after I announced that I plan to podcast full-time. This is a big step for me, but one that I hope everyone will appreciate, and I truly do appreciate your support. The issue of commercials has also been a point of contention since I talked about it last time. I actually just got my first one-star review ever with someone complaining about the commercials. If they are a concern to you, please email me directly. I know commercials can be annoying, but they really are a necessity if I want to do this full-time. I'll make a deal with you. If someone wants to step up and sponsor the show for about $1,000 a month, I'll be able to remove the Marketplace ads. But I know that's unlikely, so that's where we are. For anyone who does support this podcast on Patreon, even for as little as $2 a month, you do have access to ad-free versions of all episodes through Patreon. 
There is even a custom Patreon RSS feed that you can set up so you can have the ad-free episodes delivered directly to your device. If you support the podcast financially in some other way, other than Patreon, and you just really can't stand the ads, please reach out to me. I'm sure we can come up with some way of getting ad-free versions to you. Uh, One other fix I made last week, on some of my older episodes, before I even added the after show, there was no spot set for mid-roll ads. I did this on purpose because I only wanted mid-roll ads to show up between the main show and the after show, not somewhere in the middle when I was talking. But my host decided to pick random spots in the middle of the episode to run ads. I think I've got all those turned off now, but if anyone hears an ad that really just runs in the middle of the episode, please let me know and I'll look into it. I really appreciate everyone's patience as we work out a few bugs with regard to the commercials. I also promise to return to weekly episodes. Uh, Right now I'm trying to write a few episodes in advance so that I don't get behind again, but I do hope that after Labor Day we can return to weekly episodes. This week we covered the race to the Dan River, which was when both parties were pushing themselves to move at a crazy pace with the British Army trying to catch the American Army. What may not have come through in the main episode was that the American success in escaping the British was only possible because of the massive amount of planning and preparation that General Green had some of his officers take care of. He had sent officers to map out all the creeks and rivers in the Carolinas months before this action happened so that he knew exactly where every crossing point could be found on all the rivers and he had men commandeer boats many weeks in advance so that he would have them when needed and could deny them to the enemy. This planning is what made it possible for the Americans to keep a river between themselves and the British for nearly the entire march. For the British, this was really an aggressive movement, more than they had ever made during the war. Cornwallis's decision to burn his supply wagons was really a dramatic one and almost unprecedented in the regular army. It really sped up his army and pushed his men to the limit, but it was not enough to catch the Americans. My book recommendation this week is To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan by Andrew Waters. This is a relatively short book that focuses on the events that we discussed in this week's episode. It gives you a little more detail than obviously I can provide in my episode, so if you want to read more about what I discussed today, this is the book for you. Andrew Waters has written several good books about issues related to the revolution in the Carolinas, and for those of you who care to listen, there is an audiobook version of this book as well. So if you want to learn more about the events we discussed in today's episode, look for To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. As always, I've included links to the book on my website and blog. And just a reminder, if you use those links, I actually get a small commission from Amazon. Even if you don't buy what I've linked to, but you use the link to go to Amazon and buy other things, I still get a commission. It's a great way to support this podcast without spending any money that you weren't going to spend anyway. My online recommendation is an article from the Journal of the American Revolution. It's entitled, The Importance of a Small Skirmish During the Race to the Dan, by Bruce Peterson. This is a closer look at just one of the skirmishes that I discussed in this week's episode, 
the encounter at Bruce's Crossroads. That's the one where Tarleton's dragoons killed a bugler. Peterson makes the argument in this article that the skirmish was critical to the overall campaign and therefore the war. It's an interesting take and worth reading. All articles in the Journal of the American Revolution are available free and online. As always, I've included direct links to this article on my blog and website. My question this week comes from Brandon O'Brien, who asks, Why was Catholicism outlawed in the 13 colonies, and were some permitted into Freemason lodges? Well, Brandon, Catholics and Catholicism did receive a pretty hostile reception in most of the British colonies in North America and elsewhere. The Puritans who settled in New England were pretty strongly anti-Catholic in their religious beliefs. In fact, one reason they rejected the Church of England was that too many of that church's practices were considered too Catholic. Most of the southern colonies followed the traditional British views that those who did not belong to the Church of England were inherently suspect, and that having them in too large a numbers was going to cause problems. That said, some colonies showed some level of tolerance at various times. Maryland was actually founded by Lord Baltimore, who was a Catholic. However, the colony quickly became hostile to Catholics anyway, and although it had the largest Catholic population of the colonies, it often penalized Catholics who wanted to participate in government. Several colonies gave some support to religious toleration, but it always seemed like Catholics were suspect. Much of this had to do with concerns that Catholic France or Spain might someday challenge control of the colony, and Catholics living there might not prove loyal to Britain based on their religious adherences. Uh, The one really big colonial exception was Pennsylvania, which enacted the broadest rights for religious toleration and even allowed a few Catholic churches to be built in the colony. At one point, Pennsylvania was the only place in the British Empire where the Catholic Mass could be practiced openly. Even so, Catholics made up less than 1% of that colony's population. As time passed, most of the colonies grew more tolerant of other religions, so that by the time of the Revolution, religious toleration was becoming much more the norm. Freemasonry was actually a leader in the movement of religious toleration. During this colonial era, Freemasonry only required that one believe in one God and the immortality of the soul. So Catholics were welcome to join as members, as were members of many other religions, such as Judaism or Islam. Charles Carroll was the only Catholic to sign the Declaration of Independence, and he was a Mason. The Catholic Marquis de Lafayette was also a Mason. So whatever religious rules existed in the colonies, those restrictions did not seem to impact the Masons, who welcomed Catholics into their ranks. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please reach out to me via either email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all.
This was The Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of The Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.